This morning we're in the 15th chapter of Luke. It's going to be on page 874, starting on verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to, the, to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called out, one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. As Mike said earlier, many of us just got back from the men's retreat last night. And while we were there, uh, some of us were reminiscing about the men's retreat from a few years ago. Uh, maybe you were there and you remember. So on the way to uh, one of these previous men's retreat, we were on the way there and we get a call from the retreat center to which we're going. And they say that they're, they're having a snowstorm and the snowstorm has knocked out power to the retreat center. And we can't come. We're on the way to the retreat, and we can't come to the retreat. So we go into scramble mode. Mike Jones pulls off some kind of miracle and finds another place for us to go. We're, we're still not entirely sure what that place is. Nobody can quite even remember what it was. We're not even sure it was real. Anyway, we're heading to this new place. But what this means is that we've got to somehow inform all the guys how to get to this new place. And some of them are already headed to the old place which means many of them are lost and they don't even know it. So needless to say, it was a bit of a mess for a bit. Tons of people lost. We try to call people on the phone. We find that some people are too far west, some people are too far east, some are too far south. We're trying to talk to everybody to get them all back on one main artery that will lead them to the new destination. The point being, at least as it concerns this morning, is that one thing was evident. What we were finding out is that there was more than one way to get lost. 
This was true of that men's retreat. And in Luke 15, what we see is that this is also true spiritually. Lostness, losing God, rebelling against him, doesn't always look the same way. There's more than one way to be lost. Maybe you're here and you're feeling your lostness this morning. If that's you, I'm happy to invite you to hear the words of Jesus in Luke 15. This is part two in two sermons on, on Luke 15. If you remember, what we said last week is that this is the third of three parables, three connected parables in this one chapter. And in the first two parables, what we saw is that a person who has lots of valuable possessions sees one of those possessions go missing. A shepherd loses a sheep, a wealthy woman loses a coin. And this third parable is similar, but it's got a twist. This is a parable of a father and his two beloved sons. And as we'd expect, given the pattern of the prior two parables, one of those, one of those two prized possession goes missing. So right off the bat, we saw this last week, right off the bat, the youngest son gets lost. On purpose and in a hurry, he gets lost. He picks up all his stuff, heads out on a journey to a distant land, and leaves his family far behind. He physically departs. But, and here's the twist, in this parable, he is not the only lost son. The twist of the parable is that not one, but both of this man's sons go missing. What we find in the second part of this parable, beginning there in verse 25, is that unbeknown to us up to this point, the older son has just as decisively left behind a relationship with his father but he's done so without even leaving home. In this parable, there is a loving father who has two sons, and they've both gone missing in entirely different directions. There's more than one way to get lost. There's more than one way to rebel against God. Last week, in the younger son, we saw, that, we saw rebellion that is open and defiant, typical rebellion, we might say. But this week, in the older son, we see an entirely different kind of rebellion. This is not a rebellion that is open and defiant, but a rebellion that is secret and, ironically, very obedient. I wonder if you've thought about this before, that there's a way to rebel against God that is not defiant, but compliant. In the first kind of rebellion, the sense is that it's my bad deeds that have put me in God's debt. But in the second kind of rebellion, it's my good deeds that put God in my debt. The, and the resultant sense of the first kind of rebellion is that you just get this overwhelming sense that, oh, I, <laughs> I owe God big time. But the resultant sense of the second kind of rebellion is that you get this same overwhelming sense, but the sense is that God owes me big time. Which one of these would you say is more spiritually precarious? I wonder if anyone feels like this second type this morning. So maybe you're here. Maybe you feel like because of the the solid, upright life you've lived because of the rules that you've obeyed, because of the obviously bad things that you've chosen not to do, or because of the hard things that you've had to do, maybe you feel just a little bit that God owes you, that he's in your debt. It's about time that he owes me something good. And if that's you, Jesus has a story for you. It's, it's really easy to see the seriousness of the first kind of rebellion, isn't it? It's a very serious thing to do bad things against a holy God. But in Luke 15, Jesus sees a different additional kind of danger. It's a more subversive type of rebellion. So Jesus knows the danger, not just of doing bad things against God. He knows the danger of doing good things against God. That is to put God in your debt. And he sees this propensity in the religious folks, the Pharisees 
and the scribes, who at the beginning of this chapter were complaining about his grace. So remarkably, Jesus doesn't end the parable at verse 24 with the celebration. Instead, he takes a second part of the parable in the character of this older brother, and in him, Jesus holds up a mirror to to the more well-mannered rebels among us. So let's get our bearings from last week. Adam just read this for us. So previously on the prodigal son, what the younger brother did, he demanded his inheritance early, gathered it up, ran away, squandered everything on every selfish desire he could think of. His life went into a complete downward spiral. He lost everything, his money, his family, his dignity, his identity, everything. Finally, he came to his senses. He decided to plead with his father to receive him back just as a servant. Just let me be a slave in your house. His father sees him coming home, runs, embraces him, kisses him, turns to his servants, orders that the son be clothed with honor, receives this younger son back, reestablishes him not as a servant but as a son. And the father orders a party to commence. And boy, does a party commence. Verse 24 says they began to celebrate. There's music and there's dancing. You can imagine it, can't you? I tend to, uh, I tend to imagine the picture of the feast and the hobbit. The lights, the drink, the laughter, the stomping of feet on the dance floor. The revelry is lively, it's loud. You can imagine, you can imagine the sound of this celebration reverberating all through the property, into the house, down to the barns, out through the garden. The sound echoes over the hill all the way out into the fields. And there in the father's fields, far away, this sound meets the ears of his hired servants. And it also meets the ears of the older brother who is out working like a servant. Look at verse 25. The older son was in the field. Taking this one slowly. So just notice here, what is the older son doing when we meet him in the parable again? What's the older son been doing for all this who knows how much time that the younger son has been away? He's doing exactly what a good, faithful, obedient son should be doing, isn't he? He's out in the field. He's working for the father. He's contributing to the needs of the family. He's earning his keep. That's what the older son's doing, because that's what you do. He's in the right place. He's doing the right thing. He's doing everything right. He gets up in the morning. He puts in an honest day's work. He cleans up. He goes to bed. He gets up the next morning and does it all again. He is clinical in his obedience. He is predictable in his compliance. He causes no trouble. He breaks no rules. The older brother lives by the book, and he's proud of it. But then, in the middle of one of these run-of-the-mill workdays, something unusual happens. All of a sudden, and don't miss the juxtaposition here, all of a sudden, as he's working, he hears partying. Now, his older brother, his older son was in the field, And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So curiously, he makes his way up to the house, verse 26, and he he called to one of the servants and he he asked what these things meant. Notice the the implied distance between the father and the son, even at this point. The son has to ask a servant what's going on with the father. And the servant tells him, and he said to him, your brother, all right, just, just pause right there. I just imagine at this point, just imagine what the mere mention of the younger brother's name would do to the older brother in this story. The servant says, what's happening? Oh, well, well, you see, your brother. And the older son's thinking, wait, hold on. My what? My brother? What do you mean, my brother? Oh, you mean the guy who stole a third of what we all have to live on and went to Vegas and spent it all on prostitutes? That brother? For all I care, I don't have a brother. The servant continues, your brother has come. <laughs> the old brother says, wait, wait, he's here? You're telling, me, you're telling me that brother's here right now? He does not belong here. This isn't his home. He left. He left his home. He left his family. He left my father. And he says, well, your brother has come, and, and your father, he's, okay, wait, 
So you mean my father knows that traitor's here? He, he's, he knows that he's here on this property. Okay. All right. Well, I got to see this, right? My father's going to wring his neck. So finally that twerp's going to get what's been coming to him all this time, right? It's time to pay the piper. And the servant goes on. Uh, yeah, well, uh, you see. So your brothers come back, and the father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. And here, you can imagine, is the older brother's moment of disbelief. My father, he did what now? Remember, there's, a, there's only one reason to even have a fattened calf. A fattened calf wasn't a necessity to everyday life. It wasn't needed for daily sustenance, right? For that, they had goats. They would do the trick just fine. But in addition to these goats, if they could... A family would keep one special animal on hand, set apart, fattened up, just in case a situation came along, which was cause for such an extravagant celebration that a normal meal just wouldn't do. The fattened calf was for one occasion, epic joy. So this is the equivalent of that inordinately priced bottle of champagne on the top shelf, just collecting dust. So to pop that bottle, to kill the fattened calf, it's the sign of joyful, extravagant, grateful celebration. You don't, you don't waste it on anything but epic joy because it's too costly. Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received your brother back safe and sound. The older brother's like, you know who fattened the calf? I did. And my father, the crazy old man, he killed it for him to celebrate that wretch. It's unbelievable. And from the older brother's point of view, it is unbelievable, isn't it? The prodigal, immoral, wicked son has returned. The, the son who doesn't belong is being welcomed. The son who has, who has come back completely empty-handed is being spoiled. The prodigal son who's done nothing good for the family is being celebrated. And all this while the older brother does what? The older brother works. And he works. And the older brother is incensed. Verse 28, but he was angry and refused to go in. It's very interesting that Jesus makes a point of the older brother's anger. Why does he do that? Well, because in a more effective way than many other emotions, anger has a way of revealing our hearts, doesn't it? So I'd encourage you, pay attention to your anger. You know, oftentimes we speak of anger as if it's blinding, right? He was acting in a blind rage, that's what we say. What if that's not actually the case? What if our anger, instead of being blinding, is actually the lights coming on? What if our anger is one of the few things that's really shows, that really shows us with crystal clarity the true state of our hearts? Pay attention to your anger. Trace your anger back to its source. What's making you angry? At whom are you angry? Why? What does that tell you about your heart? So the older brother, he's, he's not said to be happy about this celebration, but he's also not said to have been sad or disappointed. He's not just discouraged. He's fuming. He's angry. And think about this. At what is he so angry? The thing that brought out his anger is what? It's the father's unjustified kindness. The older brother is angry at grace. This is the heart of a Pharisee. Pharisee is grieved at grace. Why is this? Why is the older brother so angry at the father's kindness to the younger son? 
Because, as we'll see, unlike him, the younger son had done absolutely nothing to earn a place back in the family. He had no merit. He came back empty-handed. And when this, when merit is your basis for belonging, and when you're the one who has stacked up storehouses full of merit in order to belong, then when someone comes along with no merit, and they get welcomed right in, and not just welcomed, but loved and celebrated, what do you get? You get angry. The older brother is angry because the younger brother hadn't earned all the favor that he was receiving. And in fact, it was worse than that, wasn't it? Because it, not only had the younger, had the younger son deserved, not deserved favor, what had the younger son actually deserved? Punishment. He deserves punishment and he gets kindness. All right, remember, who, who is in Jesus' crosshairs in telling this story? It's the Pharisees. It's the religious folks, right? The keepers of the law. The meritorious doers. All right, think about this. All right, so if you were there in the crowd following Jesus and you noticed a Pharisee and you turned to him and you said, hey, I'm just wondering, uh, is God merciful? Is God gracious? What would he say? Of course. Of course he's gracious. And he'd have a Bible verse for that. God is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is written on his mind, right? In fact, he might even have some verses like this stuck in a box, strapped on, on his head in a leather box. And right there. The problem is that this truth that was on the Pharisees' heads, in their minds, it was not in their hearts. And we know this because when Jesus comes along and they see Jesus give real, real life, unmerited grace and kindness, when they see him give favor to real life sinners who really clearly hadn't done a single thing to deserve it, they don't rejoice at the marvel of God's grace, do they? No, they get angry. The older brother is grieved at the grace of his father. You know, maybe, maybe at this point you find yourself empathizing with the older son a little bit. And I got to be honest, I get it. I understand having this older brother-like propensity. But if you're feeling that, you need to pay attention. Because there is truth here about God's love that you have to hear. It's at this point that the father himself comes out of the party to bring his older son in. His father, his father came out and entreated him. Remember our, remember our first two parables? They were about going out and searching for what's lost. Remember that? And who is it that the father has to search out in this parable? It's actually the older brother, isn't it? So the father does. He comes out to the older son. And notice, what is, notice what the father does when he comes out. We have to pay attention here because this, this right here is where we older brothers can start seeing the heart of God the father for sinners like us. And this is so much better, so different than our own hearts. So imagine, so we got Thanksgiving coming up. Imagine you're heading out for Thanksgiving. You're going to family's house, going to have this family celebration. And on the way there, you have this blow up. And one of the kids decide, and they get there, they're not leaving the car. And so you go in, everybody's celebrating. Your family starts asking, hey, where's, where's little Johnny? And you know where he is. He's fuming outside. So what are you feeling? You're embarrassed, aren't you? You can't control your kids. So what do you do? You go out there and you find Johnny and through gritted teeth, you say, get in there right now. <laughs> notice in the parable, notice what the father does not do when he comes out. He does not demand and he does not command the older son. His father came out and entreated him. That word, it's, 
to patiently entreat. It's a, it's a purposeful alternative to a strict command. The father comes out and he pleads. He earnestly invites the older son to come into the grace party. Come on, come on, son. I, I want you to come in too. Put off the chores. You don't have to work anymore. Just come on in. It's amazing, isn't it? Isn't it? It's, it's revelatory of the type of relationship the father wants with his children, isn't it? You can see amazingly that the father isn't just inclined to one type of son. Do you see that? The father doesn't welcome the younger brother at the expense of the older brother. He wants them both. That's the point. He wants the younger and the older. He wants the defiant and the compliant. He wants the licentious and the legalist. Younger brothers, outward rebels, older brothers, Pharisees, religious people, the door is wide open to the grace party. This is the heart of the Father in heaven. But this is also exactly the problem for the older brother, isn't it? It's the very breadth of the invitation which ironically makes the Pharisee want to keep himself out. For the Pharisee, the door is too wide open. The father throws open the doors of the party as far as grace will go. He says, if you'll come, if you'll come to the party, I'll have you. Come on. And it's as if the older brother runs up and closes the door down to just a crack, just wide enough for the most well-groomed sinner to get through. He says, what are you doing? You can't just let anybody in here. You know what kind of people are out there that might come in? And we see just how deep-seated this aversion to grace is there in verse 29. The older brother has his own speech for the father. And when you read verse 29, it feels like something that's been building up for quite a while in the older brother. It's like a volcanic eruption of self-justification, just waiting just for the, for the plates to scrape each other just right. Again, I wonder if anybody feels that. Like if just one more thing breaks the wrong way, you've got some things to get off your chest to God about what it is that you actually deserve. Verse 29, he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. You see how the older son conceives of his relationship with the father, don't you? I have served you. I've served you. I know how this is, dad. You're the master. I'm the slave. And his father's listening. What? You're what? That's how you see this? Is that how you see this? Is that how you view yourself in relationship to the Lord? He gives the orders. You obey, try hard, try not to upset him. And if you do that well enough, you'll get some blessings. You're expected to keep your end. He keeps his. He dishes out blessings on this kind of plastered over self-serving heart. You see, this is why joy is very difficult in the life of the older brother. Some of us older brothers know this, don't we? Joy is elusive because for older brothers, everything related to our relationship with the Father is transactional. There's a scale, and we, we keep working to keep it balanced in our favor. This means that every act of obedience is calculated. Every sin is self-atoned for by a good deed. And what this means is that for the older brother, obedience is not a joy. Obedience is not a means of relationship with the Father. Obedience to the Father, for the older brother, is a great and heavy burden. There's enormous pressure to obey enough, to pray enough, to read enough, to serve enough, enough, and enough, and enough, and enough. And after a while, no wonder this kind of person hates being a Christian. If this is what it is, doing enough, whatever that is, for a God who's lurking over your shoulder... And listen, in light of this parable, in light of Jesus laying out the heart of the Father to older brother sinners, let me encourage you. This is not God's heart towards his children. I'll just say it very simply. There's a very foundational but very easy to forget fact. And that is 
that your service is not the good news. Salvation is. How does, how does Paul put it to Timothy? Listen, Timothy. This saying is trustworthy. It's worthy of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save servants. Is that what he says? Christ Jesus came into the world not to save servants. He came to save sinners. Jesus did not come, shed his blood on the cross because he needs you. He came because you need him. Love how John Piper puts it. He says, the gospel is not a help wanted sign. The gospel is a help available sign. This is the message for older brothers, and we need this because like the older brother in this parable, we have a particularly malformed view of the way that we relate to the Father that needs to be blown up, at least some of us do. Do you remember the, do you remember the younger brother's rehearsed speech from earlier on in the parable? Notice the, notice the difference in the older brother's speech here. So where the younger brother takes full, takes on himself full comprehensive responsibility the older brother takes on himself full comprehensive credit. You notice that? Look at the contrast. The younger brother says, I have sinned. The older brother insists, I have served. The younger brother says, I am without excuse. The older brother proclaims, I am without compensation. The younger brother says, I have no record of doing right. The older brother claims, I have no record of doing wrong. The younger brother says, I am not worthy. And the older brother testifies, I am the only one who is worthy. Can't you see that? I'm the one who deserves the party. Not him. I'm the one that deserves to be celebrated. If anyone among us has found favor in your sight, wouldn't it be me? But what, is, what have you done instead? Verse 30. When this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. You notice another thing about the pharisaical heart. You'll know that you struggle as an older brother when what you need in your relationship with the father is to bring in another worse person than yourself into the equation to, establish, to help establish your righteousness. So instead of the father looking at the work of his perfect son, Jesus, and based simply on your faith in Jesus, declaring you to be righteous in him, instead of that, instead of Jesus and his righteousness being the third party, what you do is you bring in your own third party into the courtroom. And who is the third party you bring in? It's anyone who's a worse sinner than you are. This is why the situation is so serious and so dire for us older brothers. Because the older brother heart is at heart a rejection of Christ. What the older brother is saying is that I know I need righteousness. I know I need righteousness to stand before a holy God. So what I'll do is I'll get a really bad, obvious sinner and I'll stand next to him. And then it'll be obvious who the righteous one is. You can see why this way of living is so exhausting, and you can also see why this way of living is so condescending to other sinners, can't you? Constant maintenance of our own righteousness is so burdensome because it hangs, it hangs on my relative righteousness to other people. This is also why self-righteousness is so unkind. This is a dead giveaway of the older brother heart, hatred for sinners. You need to hate sinners. You need to be better than them. It's evil. James Boyce says it like this. He says, we are never so like God as when we rejoice at the salvation of sinners. We are never so like Satan as when we despise those who are thus converted and think ourselves superior to them. To the older brother, there is only one way a person can be lost. That is to be self-condemningly bad. 
What he doesn't realize is that there's another way to be lost, and that is to be self-justifyingly good. The older son had built an entire life on strict obedience to the father, for the favor of the father, to earn the blessings of the father, which had actually led him away from intimacy with the father. In his desperate attempts of strict obedience, he found himself completely estranged. I wonder if, wonder if any of us can relate. You see the, that the great, the sad irony of this parable is that the older son, who lived in the constant presence of his father, was not enjoying the father any more than the younger son who was a thousand miles away. You have one son who's a million miles away from his father in lifestyle. You have another son who's a million miles away from his father in his heart. Neither are enjoying the son who, enjoying the father who loves them. You see this in the older son's complaint. You see that he doesn't complain that the father was never there with him or that the father never spent time with him. In fact, this is the very reality about which the father reminds him. Verse 31, the father said to him, son, you're always with me. All that, I, all that is mine is yours. Just notice a few things here about the father and his response. It really just opens up the heart of the father to us. Notice how he addresses the older son. So the ESV here says son there in verse 31, but the actual word here is the simple word for child. It puts it a little bit in a different light, doesn't it? He comes, uh, he comes out of the party. He's looking for his older son. He hears, he hears his bitterness. He hears him out. He puts, his, he puts his hand on his back. He says, oh, my child. The father's work here in this situation is to help the son, his struggling son, to help him see. Get this. What he's doing. See what he's doing. He's helping the older son see that everything he's working so hard to become he already is. Older brothers, can't you see that you can never make yourself into what God himself has already made you? Older brothers, ask yourself, how did you get into this family? It was by free grace, wasn't it? So ask yourself then, how will you remain in the family? Is it not by free grace? Older brothers, have you, have you come to terms with the fact that God's acceptance of you, even his ongoing acceptance of you, really is on the basis of his goodness, not your own? Some of us, the longer we live in the family, we fall into wrong patterns of thinking regarding just how excessive God's grace is. So we start to think something like, well, I know I'm in the family, and I know that the only reason I'm here is because of grace, but I, I just really feel i got to bring something to the table here. Like, eventually, I need to, I need to start like, earning my keep. At some point, isn't there a time when I start paying my rent in the family of God? like I bring to the table to keep my place here. So I'll, I'll bring something of myself. I'll bring some of my own merit. After all, it can't hurt, right? And here's the message of the parable. Of course it can hurt. Of course it can. Because merit-seeking obedience always undercuts grace. And it always cuts off real fellowship with God. You cannot seek to earn God's good grace on the one hand and at the same time revel in free grace on the other. I wonder if this could be why some of us are unhappy even as God's children. All of our obedience is seeking to get the Father's love instead of remembering that he's already given all of it. You have God's love in Christ. If you're outside of Christ, if you're not yet in him, come to him. You need to be in. You need to repent. You need to see that the life you've lived is against this God. 
And you need to be the younger son and come and come. And when you come, he'll come and meet you and embrace you and bring you in and make you a son by his free grace. You say, I have no righteousness. Jesus has all of it. I want that to count for me. And he says, you're in. Listen to what the father says to you older brothers, though. The father said to him, son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. All that is mine is yours, child. What's the father's point? What's he trying to get the older son to see? He's trying. He's trying to get the son to see. Listen. That slaves don't get inheritances. Sons do. Be my son. Accept being my son. Leave slavery. Leave slavery to sin of licentiousness. Leave slavery to sin of legalism. And just be my son. Be content with being united to Christ by faith. And do you see how... Although these sons are lost in completely different directions, the father's message to them is essentially the same. Do you see that? So one son comes to the father and says, I am not worthy. The other son comes to the father and says, I have proven myself worthy. And what's the father's answer to both sons? Just like we saw last week. Son, it couldn't matter less what you think your worth is. Your worth is not determined by who you are out on your own. Your worth is not determined by your perfect, steadfast, diligent service to me. Your worth is only found in who you are in relation to me. And you are not my servant. You're my son. You notice how the father answers his sons, never. You never do this. Never do this. Never do this. He answers that with what? always. You say, I never do this, but I'm always with you. But here we see another facet of the fallen older brother's heart, don't we? The father's constant presence is exactly his problem. The older son's saying, I don't want fellowship. I want fun for a change. You see what he complains about? In all these years of perfect obedience, Forget the fattened calf. You've never given me a goat that I can just go enjoy it with my friends without you. I can't believe you're doing this. I can't believe you're doing this to us, to me. Victim, victim, victim to me. I can't believe you're doing this for him. The older brother feels overlooked. He feels taken for granted. He feels deeply underappreciated. He feels forgotten. He feels unloved. And why is this? Is it because there's something wrong with the father's love? No, it's because he feels that his father has been more generous to a sinner who knows he deserves nothing than to a seemingly perfectly obedient son who deserves everything. And it's here, you can, you can just imagine the father kind of holding out his hands, saying, son, whenever, whenever you're ready to be with me, like really ready to be with me, whenever you're ready to be loved by me, I'm here. And look, look at this inheritance. All that I have, it's yours. But, but you know what? It's also his. I know you don't understand why I did this, <clears throat> why I killed the fattened calf, why I popped the good champagne, why I'm throwing this party, but this party is perfectly fitting. You know why? You just imagine the father pointing up to the party through the crowd to his younger son. And he says, verse 32, you see that? He says, that brother of yours. You see what the father did? He reminded him that he's not only his son, he's a brother. This brother of yours, he was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. What's Jesus' message to the Pharisees? What's his message to those who are bent on earning and keeping their way into the, into the family? <clears throat> his message is that the very people you thought were out, the kind of people you thought had no shot at eternal life, the ones that you thought were eternally written off dead, they're coming to life. And they're coming into the heavenly party. 
God the Father, by his grace, through the work of the Son, is welcoming sinners and eating with them. And without, without announcement, in verse 32, the parable ends. It's a complete cliffhanger, isn't it? We, we don't know how it ends. We don't know how the older son responds. And that, it seems to me, is because the response to this parable is not, to, is not meant to be in here. It's meant to be in here. Among us. The question lingers for you. How will you respond to God's grace? I'm assuming there's some people here who need to relay a foundation of righteousness. So some of us need to confess the tendency to find our righteousness, to find our acceptance before God in our performance for him. We, the invitation is to lay that unbearable burden aside and take on a completely different righteousness, the righteousness that is in Christ through faith. And, you know, for some of us, this means that we need to completely rethink the way that that God, the way that we imagine God viewing our sin. I wonder if this describes you. You know, for some of us, the only time that God loves us is when we're successfully sin-free. Anybody feel like that? If that's you, I want you to take in the very point of the parable. Because what we have in Luke 15 is a picture of God's heart for his children when they sin. Think about it. In both instances, the father finds his sons in their sin. One is detestably immoral and one is pridefully moral. The father comes out of the house and finds his sons in their worst possible state. And what is his posture towards both of them? What's his countenance towards both kinds of sinful sons? It's love. Christian, child of God, you need to know something. You need to be convinced about something about your heavenly father. God loves you when you sin. He does not love that you sin. So we don't get this wrong. It's not what this passage is saying but he does love you even as you're right in the middle of your struggle with sin. In this passage, he does not hold back his love until his sons get themselves together. He does not say in disgust, you're filthy. Get cleaned up and we can talk. No, while you're still in your sin, in your struggle with pornography, in your sleeping around, in your serving the church for accolades, and you're keeping the rules for acceptance. And when all these inevitably take, take you to places far away from fellowship with God, he comes out and he says, child, I, my beloved child, all I have is yours. Just come in. You don't have to stay out here. Just come in here. This is difficult for us older brothers to really take in, isn't it? Because if we're honest... Listen, if we're honest, the heart problem for the older brother and the heart problem that we feel is that we find it easier to be whitewashed than to be bloodwashed. The gospel is not a whitewashed life. The gospel brings a bloodwashed soul. My challenge to you, older brothers, it's time to come out. Come out as a sinner in need of cleansing. Drop the bleach and come under the blood. That's what the gospel says. Set your mind, older brother, on the grace of the Lord Jesus. Think of the heart of Christ for sinners. Jesus, Jesus is the real older brother, isn't he? He's the one who sits in heaven at the right hand of the Father, home with God the Father. He is the one son who legitimately deserves to be in the party. That's who Jesus is. And yet, not only does he sit there and watch the Father welcome in sinners into the, this heavenly celebration of glory, but think about what Jesus has done. Jesus, the older brother, is himself the one who came and sought us out and paid the price for our admission to the party with his own blood. 
in contrast to the older brother who keeps his distance because of his brother's sin. For Jesus, it's the very sinfulness of sinners that compels him to seek them out. He loves them in their sin. And because of this, because because the salvation of sinners brings inestimable glory to the Father and the Son, what happens when just one poor, wretched sinner gets saved? What happens? This is the point of the first two parables, wasn't it? Verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before angels, the angels of God, over one sinner who repents. And just to make it clear, back in verse 7, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. God doesn't need and heaven doesn't rejoice over many, many multitudes of people who see themselves as fine just the way they are. Well, well then what? So if millions of people confessing their own righteousness doesn't make heaven sing, then what will? And Jesus says, I'll tell you. What makes heaven sing is one person confessing his need for Jesus. That one act hardly noticed on earth, blows the roof off of heaven. God loves and heaven rejoices in sinners humbly receiving grace. In our first application together, it sits right in front of us. Jesus welcomes sinners and eats with them. Let's prove them right. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we praise you for your love. We magnify your love by declaring our need for it. Guard us, keep us, Father, by your spirit. Keep us from boasting in anything other than the righteousness of Christ displayed in the gospel, poured out on the cross, triumphing in the resurrection and righteousness that is seated at your right hand even right now. We pray that you would be glorified in the way that we glorify your grace. Amen.